If I can have everybody take their seats, please. If you can find your seats, it would be helpful. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I am excited about all the people who have said they're excited to go through Romans. But as I've read through the book, I've wondered when's the last time some of the people have read Romans? Because while it's exciting to go through Romans, Romans is not an easy book. And I'm not just talking about teaching from Romans, but Romans is a very dense theological book. There's this book, it, it assumes a level of knowledge that people in this room will not have. So to go through this book, we will have to explain things and make sure that we're on the same page of the people that, that this book, this letter was written to so that you, we can understand. So this is going to be fun, but it's going to be challenging because this is not an ABC 123 book. So I'm glad that you are excited, but I would say buckle up. In fact, in fact, in the proof of this, there's proof. Let me prove this. Let's, let's think about this for a second. This is proof of what I'm saying. Here's the proof of what I just said. We're going to do just verses 1 through 7 this morning. Let's read these verses this is an introduction, okay? This is a hello. My name is Paul, and listen to this introduction for the book of Romans. I'm reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible Version, and I quote, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, many of us have some knowledge of what he's saying, but this is an introduction. This is just an introduction. Now, many of Paul's letters have a similar introduction, but they only use two verses. Look at verses 1 and verses 7. The majority of the rest of the letter, if you don't know who Paul is, Paul, is he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. The majority of his letters are two verses from this passage. Verse 1. This is the, if you look at Philippians, Ephesians, Thessalonians, Corinthians, it'll say something like this. Paul, verse 1, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 7. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If you look at any other letter from Paul, the majority of his introductions have verse 1 and verse 7 of this. But this introduction has verses 2 through 6. He's explaining dense, more serious theology to this church, to these people. I think it's safe to say that this is the most significant introduction of all that Paul has written. Because we have these verses 2 through 6. Now, often when you read commentaries, if you read commentaries on a book like this, many of the commentaries will give you a lot of background on why they think he's writing this church. What's the purpose of writing to this church? Why is he writing to Romans? And they'll focus on things that are, it's fascinating material. I looked at one commentary just to read the background information, and it was 30-something pages just explaining why they think he's writing this letter. What is his motive? So you'll hear things like this. People, people think theologians and scholars think that Paul is anticipating a level of objection because Paul is preaching the gospel. He goes into synagogues where Jewish people are and they reject him. And then he goes to where non-Jewish people are, which the Bible calls Gentiles. And he tries to tell them about Jesus and some accept him and some reject him. And Paul is used to this. So some people think that Paul wrote out this letter because he's never been to Rome and he wants them to know ahead of time his theological observations observations so that if there's any objections then he's addressed them before he gets there some people think that some people think that Paul is defending the fact that he's an apostle there are a lot of people who know that Paul wasn't one of the original 12 Paul came afterwards after Jesus was already dead so who were you you're not Peter you're not James, you're not John, you're not one of the people who spent three years walking with Jesus when he was alive. So some people think he's defending his apostleship. Thank you, brother. Killing me, but I love it. Got two over here and keep bringing them. I'll take like 12 of these home. <laughs> Have me a little 12-pack. I could go on and on about the possibilities of why Paul is writing this letter. Why is this introduction so significant? Why is this one so different than the rest of his letters? I could give you a lot of perspective. Let me just give you three reasons. Two of them have to do with Paul, and one of them does not. And the one that does not, I feel like people overlook this reality. So I want to bring it up. Here's the first one. And you may have heard this last week. This is Rome is the center of the world at this point in time. So this is like, is there a city that maybe like New York City with greater influence over the world? This is a significant city. And so the opportunity for missionary work, for Paul to preach the gospel in this city because of all the people that come into it and all the people that go out of it, the opportunity for people to hear the gospel and then take the gospel to other places is too good to pass up. This city is, is, is this is a serious opportunity here. And so Paul is right at the location is incredible in light of who Rome is at the time what Rome is about, and all of the people that come in and out of the city. That's one. 
The other one is this, the makeup of the church, the makeup. Paul did not plant this church, and neither did any of the other apostles. In fact, no one knows how this church started. No one really knows. There's no clear evidence of how this church started. So the makeup of this church is crucial. And here's why. In 49 AD, the Roman emperor, Claudius, expelled all the Jews from Rome. He kicked them out because Jewish Christians were fighting with other Jews about Jesus. And it was causing an uproar. So Claudius declared, all the Jews leave Rome now. And so Jews are just leaving. They're gone. They have no choice. They have to leave. So they're gone for five years. Because in 54 AD, Claudius dies and the Jews come back. But when they're gone, a church is established. And it's all people who are non-Jewish. They're called Gentiles. Non-Jewish people have a church. So five years later, the Jews come back, Jewish Christians come back to a church that has already established itself. It has its doctrinal beliefs. It even has a view of the Jews, of the people who rejected Jesus. It has all these different dynamics going on. You have Jews who are Christians that are coming back with the Old Testament background of God's people, and they have a perspective that they're bringing. And you have Gentiles who have no connection to that Old Testament background, who have a different perspective, and they're gathering together in one church. The potential for hostility is high. It's high. So Paul is writing a letter, and at times, he will address the Jews. At times, he will address the Gentiles. And because of the location of this church and the makeup of this church, he writes a serious theological letter to this church. But there's one more reason, and this doesn't have anything to do with Paul. And the reason why I want to bring this up is because often when I read commentaries like this, like one I read, so much of the emphasis is on Paul or the author and what was going on and why did he write that and what did he do? And I feel like, I feel like sometimes even these wonderful, great theologians miss one aspect. They forget that God inspired Paul to write these words. Okay, so it's not just what was Paul doing, why was Paul writing, why, what was he defending, what was he speaking to. God wanted Paul to write these words. If you are a Christian and you believe the Bible is the word of God, then what we believe is that the Bible is inspired by God. The scriptures are inspired. What that means is God, through the Holy Spirit, used the personality, the life experience, the intellectual ability all these different components he used for each person and, and used it in such a way that they wrote down exactly what he wanted people to hear. So this is why you have different styles of writing, because Paul is a very sharp, smart theologian. He's like a genius. Then you got dummies, people who are not geniuses, and they're writing their perspective. 
You've got different ways of writing different personalities. Just like when you hear us teach, I, I teach a certain way. Dr. Lee teaches a certain way. Carl teaches a certain way. But God's using all of us. No one's better. No one's more. It's just God uses each of us to communicate to you all what, what we believe, what we think he wants you to know based upon his word. It's the same way he did with people who wrote scripture. So they're writing according to what God wanted them to know. And I feel like sometimes so much emphasis is put on Paul or the author that there's not a step back and say, why would God want to communicate this to these people? Is it just for Paul's sake? I don't think so. So let me submit one reason why I think this introduction is significant that highlights God. I think this, this letter highlights God's amazing mercy specifically for this reason. Rome is the city and the people who are physically responsible for Jesus' death. These are the people who killed Jesus, literally. The Jews turned them over to Pilate and the Romans. So it was the Romans who put a crown of thorns on his head and who punched him in his face and who spit on him and who said prophesy. It was the Romans who tied him around a rock and stripped his robe off and took a whip and whipped him 39 times and ripped his back open. It was the Romans who gave him a hundred pound cross and told him to carry it up a hill when he could barely stand up that they had to grab someone from the crowd and pull him to help him. It was the Romans who were laughing and deciding what they're going to do with his clothes. It was the Romans who took the nails and nailed them into his hands and hoisted them up as they laughed as they'd done to many people. It was the Romans who Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And there was his mercy that the people who killed Jesus get the greatest explanation of what they did. This is the mercy of God that there's even a church in Rome. The fact that a church exists in Rome, the city where people physically killed his son, Rome should be destroyed. When Jesus was dying on the cross, it said that the whole earth went dark for three hours. Rome should be decimated. They had the greatest murder in all of human history. And yet they get the greatest implications of that murder in all of human history. And so we see on display the greatest mercy in all of human history. Rome shouldn't have a church. Do you realize this letter is written just 20 to 25 years after Jesus was crucified. So there are people in this city, maybe in this church, who were there, who participated in, and who with joy cheered as they watched Jesus being crucified. There are people there who remember, who saw this atrocity. And God in his mercy says, let me explain to you in the greatest detail, the implications of what you did. What a great God. They killed his son, and they get the greatest theological letter out of all of them, explaining what they've done, and God displays incredible mercy. 
He is truly amazing. I've told you this story before. When my son was playing flag football and the coach was yelling at my son for a couple minutes, I wanted to hurt him. <laughs> this is my son you're yelling at. And I know my son. He can't, doesn't do well with that. So as the coach is yelling at him, Santiago, get over. And then he gets more confused. He's more worried about what's going on. I'm thinking, and I'm sitting there at first. I was like, what do you mean? I'm like, all right, son, move to where you got to move to. You know, I'm trying to be. And then as he yells, and then the other coach yells at him. And I'm like, hey, man, hold up, man. That's my son you're talking to. Then he got to the spot, and he didn't do something. They yelled at him again, so now I get out the car. <laughs> just, I just, you know, and I close the door loud. <laughs> I want the coach to know dad is watching. So now I'm starting to walk over like, what's going on over here? I'm offended. How dare you yell at my son? How dare you yell at my son? I'm, I'm almost ready to risk my testimony. <laughs> we get ready to get into something, man. You yell at my son one more time like that. The father loves his son way more than I love mine, and yet they kill him, and they get this mercy. I had to remember who God is and who I am to not sin just by yelling at my son to do something he's not doing right. And here is a son who did everything right that's killed by these people, and they get this letter, and they get a church. Oh, man. If people don't think God forgives, they don't really understand what's going on. This introduction explains more theology in two minutes than most people get in a lifetime. So let's get into it. Beginning in verse 1. Here's what Paul says. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this part of the introduction, the first part, the Paul, an apostle, a servant of Jesus Christ Jesus, is, is standard for him. He identifies himself, some of the other language, the original text would say a bond slave, a slave. Paul's identifying himself with Jesus Christ, and the association is important because this is a culture where people had servants, they had slaves. And depending on who was your master, you would be seen with a different degree. Like if you were a slave of the, the, like Caesar or somebody or somebody of high stature, then you were important. So Paul is identifying himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. This is of the utmost importance. I'm a direct servant of Jesus Christ. And then he continues. Then he continues with this very important designation. Called as an apostle and set apart by God. Here's why this is important. Out of all the people who spoke for God, only certain people could claim this designation. Okay? Only certain people. Like, uh, so we're all family, right? We, many of us, we're brothers and sisters, biblically speaking, and some of us have deeper friendships as we've interacted with each other. There's people in this room I've known for years, and I said, that's like my little brother, that's this and that, that's that. That's that, that's this. There are people who say, man, you've been like a father figure to me. Cool. But only Santiago, Giovanni, and Mateo can say they're my son, though. Now, I may have had an impact in your life, and you may have at times felt like I was a father and all that thing, and that's wonderful, and I'm grateful, and I'm humbled by that. But in reality, only Santiago, Giovanni, and Mateo can say they are my sons. Only certain people get to say certain things. And so when Paul is saying he's called as an apostle and set apart by God, only few people can say that. 
So if there's any question upon who this is, he's making sure you know that, yeah, I wasn't part of the original 12, but I was still called by God to be an apostle, a messenger with a level of authority. So if I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and I'm called by God to be an apostle, then I have a level of authority that other people don't have, including the emperor of Rome at the time would have been Nero. There's an authority that he's saying he has by these introductions. Understand, these are words to us like this. We don't talk like this. But these words are carefully put in here for a reason. They're communicating something to the people that were the original recipients of these words. They meant something to them. So I want to make sure they mean something to us. So he's called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This statement is layered. This is layered. This is a huge statement. This is, this is, this is now God communicating through Paul that what's happening here, who Jesus is, the implications of what's happening, the fact that you exist as a church is all connected to what Jesus has done that's connected to what God has said over a thousand years ago through the prophets. So this is old school. So this is a promise that he's saying. He uses the word promise, which he promised beforehand. So this is a promise that God made a long time ago that people have been waiting for, and now he's saying this promise has been fulfilled. So he's bringing their attention to the faithfulness of God. This is that long faithfulness. God said this. You ever have your, you know, I'm a parent, so I use a lot of kid illustrations. If I tell my kids we're going to Chuck E. Cheese, at like 11 o'clock, but I know we're not going till 5. I regret that I said that until we, go on, until we get in the car. Because at 11, 17, Poppy, what time are we going to Chuck E. Cheese? We're going a little bit later, son. We're going to 5. Okay. At 11, 22, the other son comes. Poppy, what time are we going to Chuck? At 5 o'clock. At 12.09. Poppy, what time? Are at 5 o'clock. 137, all three of them. Poppy, 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 what time are we? Ask me again, we're not going, son. I'm not going. <laughs> I said 5 o'clock. What time is it? Cynthia, you can tell time. What time is it, son? It's 119. Ask me at 445 what time we going. You know, this, this is, they just ask me these questions all the time, asking me, asking me, asking me. And I'm just like, man, I wish I had never told you that. I wish I had never said to you we were going. There's a promise that I made that this, they can't wait for that promise. But when I do it, it's like, my dad, yeah, they're going to Chuck E. Cheese. Hey, that's my dad. Those kids don't care. <laughs> I love it when they walk up and be like, this is my dad. And kids be like, so? What you <laughs> and I'm from the hood, so I'd be like, so do you too. Where's your dad at? No, I don't do that. But I feel it sometimes. Don't yell at my son. He's saying that God has promised Thousands of years ago, through the Old Testament prophets, so Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all Moses, and all these prophets, God had promised that this person was coming, and he's come. So this is an old promise. Old promise. So Paul lays his foundation. Listen, I got news for you. I'm an apostle called by God, set apart, just like an Old Testament prophet. What they prophesied in the old has come to fruition now in the new. So I'm here to tell you about that. So God kept his promise 
here it is. Here he is. And so he explains in a little bit more detail in the next, in the next verses, three and four. So there was a promise that God made through his prophets in the Old Testament. Here was that promise. Verse three. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful son of God, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So now Paul acknowledges there's a promise and he gets more specific in verse three. So here's the promise concerning his son. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he's making sure we know we're on the same page. The Old Testament promise, the promise for thousands of years that you have heard that people have been waiting for is confirmed. It's been fulfilled. It's through Jesus Christ. It's concerning him. It's about him. This is a promise. It's about him. It's been confirmed. And then he makes sure that they understand that it's that serious. So he describes something that proves who the Christ is. And he says this who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, many of us understand this, so we know what that means, but there may be some who don't. Here's what he means by that. You look at 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 133, uh, Isaiah 11, 1 through 6. There are these verses that are a long time ago, long time ago before Jesus came to life, that predicted that David, this guy David, was a king, and that he would have a son eventually, obviously not his son, but great, 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 grandson. Someone who was a relative of his would sit on the throne forever. That was prophesied. Someone who was, so for after David died and David had a son named Solomon and then Solomon, and then all these people are waiting, well, where is the dude at that we heard was going to sit on the throne forever? It was going to help us because we're struggling. Rome has authority over us and we want it off. Where is David's son, the king who's going to come from David? David was a king. Where's the son coming from? It's been hundreds and hundreds of years. Where is he? Well, he's saying, look, he's, he came. He was, this is him. He was Jesus. He was David's son according to the flesh. So he was fully man. He was fully man. I mean, Jesus was a human being, and he was related to David. He was in David's family. So what this, is, this, is, this is ancestry. Verse 3 is ancestry.com. First century. Circa, circa. Circa AD 55. This is, this is how they did Ancestry.com back then. For us, we go on a website, you type in your last name and all this, you pay some money and all this stuff happens. But when you see all these genealogies like this and the father of and his father was such and such, and that's their Ancestry.com. And they trace that all the way back. So that's how your importance was determined by who your ancestors were. So for us, we don't really think like that. I don't think like that. My importance isn't connected to who my ancestors are, although it could be helpful help me understand things about myself and different things, but that's not my importance. But in this day and age, your importance was who is your ancestors? Who were they? And he's saying, look, here's the Ancestry.com. Jesus was the son in the line of David. He was fully man. He was really born. He was here. He was a descendant of David. That was the promise, the beforehand promise that the Old Testament prophets made. That was the promise. It's going to come through David's family line. So just keep trace, keep track of that family line, and then one day he's going to come. 
So that was one side. Then he says in verse 4, he says this is verse 4, and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Who talks like that? This is a crazy explanation. A descendant of David according to the flesh. And there's proof of that. There's scriptures that prove that. Look at 2 Samuel 7. Look at Psalm 133. Look at Isaiah 11. Look at Psalm 110. These are are realities. God promises that David will have this son. God keeps his promise as Jesus is fully man. He's born in the line of David. But then he says he was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Here's why this language is very important for those of us who know some theology. Here's why this is very important for us. Many of us, we tend to think of Jesus like this. He's the third person of the, he's one of the Trinity, he's the second person of the Trinity. He's God, equal to God. He's the son of God. He's all powerful. He's all these things. And then he leaves that, comes down to become a human being. So he's fully man. He's fully God. He becomes a man and then lives a perfect life. Lives a perfect life. No sin at all. Did nothing wrong. Then he dies on the cross as if he had done all the wrongs in the world. He receives the punishment for that. But then he rises from the dead. Three days later, gives his spirit, and he ascends to heaven, and everyone's, and he's waiting for us to come to him. He returns back to what he was. That's kind of how we think of Jesus. That's an inaccurate understanding of Jesus. That's a very inaccurate understanding of Jesus. It's mostly true, but it's not all true. If we're going to truly understand who the Lord is and why there's going to be ridiculous worship of him when we get to heaven, we must understand that his death on the cross made him something different than he had been before he died. Jesus didn't just step out of heaven become a human being, and then just step back up and resume things as they always were. He became something different as a result of dying on the cross. And in this language, this is what he's trying to say. So look at this language again in verse 4. He was appointed. He was declared. He was made to be the powerful son of God. According to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So he was declared, he became the powerful son of God by the Holy Spirit. When did this happen? When did this happen? By the resurrection of the dead. After the spirit resurrected him from the dead, the cosmos sees Jesus differently because he died on the cross. So yes, he was fully God before this happened, he was, he was the second person of the Trinity. He was all-powerful. He was all these things, but he's actually given 
new designations, new responsibilities, new rewards even as a result of humbling himself. Jesus is not the same. When, 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 when John and John 20, when Thomas, when Jesus shows himself and Thomas says, uh, he puts his hands out like this and shows the holes in his hands so Thomas can see that this, I'm really here. This is really the Jesus. There's holes in my hands. Jesus didn't have holes in his hands before the cross. When in Revelation 5, when John sees this vision of a lamb who appeared to be slain, Jesus didn't have a mark on him before the cross. Jesus wasn't the Messiah before the cross. He wasn't worshipped that way before the cross. It was after he humbled himself and gave up his life and received the judgment of God that he becomes the, the son of God in power. And there are other verses that describe him in significant ways. Philippians 2, powerful verse, says this. 5 through 11, it says this. You can turn there, you, don't, you can turn there if you want. If you've if you got quick fingers, get there. If you got an app, you can do it quicker. This is what he says. Paul, the same writer who wrote, who wrote Romans, is writing to another church. All the, all the letters are named because where the church lives. So Philippians was in a town called Philippi. So they're Philippians because they live there. We would be Buionians if we lived there, or Riverdalians if, we, if it were talking about us, if he was writing to us if we lived here, right? That's how it would be. We used to say District Columbians when we was in the city, even though it got confusing because people were like, so you're Colombian? But some people like, ne ne never mind. That's my dad. I don't care about your dad. <laughs> so here's what it says in Philippians 2, verse 5. It says this, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who... Existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. In other words, he was God, just like God, but he did not allow that to stop him from being a man. So he did, verse 7, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. So instead of being God in the cosmos, he becomes a human being. And when he came as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. This is significant. God, who created all things, humbles himself to the point of even dying on a cross, which back then was the most painful, gruesome way anybody could die. It was painful. It was excruciating. So, so he humbled himself even to that. So, that's, so here's the result of that in verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him. And gave him the name that is above every name. You see, the connection is for the reason that he humbled himself to the point of the cross. So Jesus became something different, something even greater after he humbled himself and died on the cross. And if we're going to really celebrate who the Lord really is, we have to understand what he really did. That he becomes something different because he dies on the cross for us. He didn't just do it and go back to who he was. He did it and became something greater. So God gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. And there are other passages that describe he did this and now he's this. That he has a name that the Father gave him that no one else knows. That happened because he died. 
he humbled himself. So when in, in Romans, what Paul is trying to communicate, what God is communicating through Paul is that this is a reality that he was appointed. He became, he was declared, he made the powerful son of God when? After that he resurrected from the dead by the Holy Spirit. This is a lot of theology. This is only verse four. This is verse four. That's not, we're at verse four. We got three verses to go. This is verse four. And look at the theology we've looked at so far. Called. Paul's been chosen. He's elected. Set apart. Sanctified. There's apostolic leadership. So Paul has authority from God to do this. There's prophecy. The Old Testament prophets from beforehand. There's the incarnation, which is just a, a, a term that says Jesus became a human being. So there's fully God and fully man. There's the Trinity. So you got God who promised beforehand concerning his son, Jesus, who made Jesus the spirit of God in power after he raised him from the dead. So you get the Trinity at work. The Trinity, the Godhead, you see different roles at work just in these four verses. You see this, this Christological coronation that now Jesus is now this. Jesus Christ is this because of this. And you see resurrection theology resurrected from the dead. All of this in just four verses. Hi, I'm Paul. This is serious greeting. Imagine if somebody walked up to you for the first time, you've never met them. They say, how you doing? How you doing, man? My name's Kurt. How you doing, man? I'm Bill, man. I grew up in such and such a town and place. I did this. This happened to me. That happened to me. This happened to me. That happened to me. I became this, then that, then this, and did that, and then all of that happened, and this happened, and I came over there, did that, jumped over that, fell back, and hit that, drove over that, came over there, did that, received that. Now I'm good, man. <laughs> I would be like, you know what, man? My wife is calling me, man. I'll be right. <laughs> That's too much information. I just said, hello, fam. I wasn't asking you. That's too much. This is a lot of information because this letter is serious to God. Not that any of them are not. I'm not saying that all the letters are serious. God's word is God's word. He takes everything serious. But I want you to understand this is significant. And I'm still, I just, the fact that the Romans who killed Jesus get this greatest explanation of what they did is incredible to me. So we've been looking at this vertical view of things. Paul's given us this vertical view of the gospel. Here's what God promised beforehand through the prophets concerning his son who became a man and the spirit made him the son of God in power, the spirit of holiness through the resurrection. This is this vertical understanding of the gospel. And if you're going to believe in Jesus Christ, we have to understand the vertical sense, all that God did. And then Paul brings it down in verse 5 to the horizontal. So first it's the vertical. Here's all the stuff that God did in 1 through 4. Well, 1, here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. 3 and 4, here's what God did. And now here's the horizontal view of the gospel in verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. So here's, the, here's what God's done. So here's who God is, and here's what he's done. So here's who you are, and here's what you must do. That's how it works. What did God do? Who is God, and what has he done? And now, 
who am I, and what must I do? It's always that. God first, me second. He initiates, I respond. It's always that. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith. So here's a horizontal view. There is an apostleship established. So again, he brings us back to who he is. Because of Jesus Christ and what he's done, God has given us grace, which is mainly unearned, like unmerited, unearned. You didn't earn it. It's unearned favor from God. So God gives us grace and an apostleship, a responsibility, a responsibility this way. So God did this this way, and now we have a responsibility this way. What is that responsibility? What is it right here? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles. Very important phrase. Very important phrase. Because this phrase is what separates all the things that we do from every other religion in the world. This phrase separates us from every other religion. Think about this for a moment. Almost every religion, in fact, I don't know if there are any that don't. There may be some who know more than me about the religions. Almost every religion in the world has a sense of higher morality, right? Everyone is trying to be a better person. Some religions tell you that if you ain't get it right in this life, you're going to die and come back and do it again. Right? There's this sense of every religion except maybe the church of Satan. I don't know what they believe. I've never read their material. I don't plan to. But, but you name any other major world religion, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, all of them have a sense of be a better person. Even if you don't believe in any religion, that's a religion in and of itself. It's called meology. But even if you don't believe in anything, right, you got people who want to be better people. New Year's resolutions. I want to spend more time with my family. I want to work hard. I want to do this. I want to do that. But why do you want to do those things? Why do you want to be a better person? Why do you want to be nicer? Why do you want to do these things? There's, a, there's always a sense of be a better person, a higher morality. So if all the religions have at its base some semblance of be better, do better. Muslims pray five times a day. Jehovah's Witness knock on all of these doors more than we do. They knock on your door with no cookies or nothing and want you to sit there for an album and talk. Bring me some cookies or something, man. I don't need them, but bring them at least to show that you respect my time. It's an hour right now I'm giving you. You got people doing all this stuff. So what makes your obedience different than theirs then? If Muslims pray five times a day, how many people pray five times a day in this room? Don't even raise your hand because we already know. Many of us don't. There are people who are more moral than us. So what separates their morality from ours. What makes you, you've heard me ask this, what makes your obedience Christian? There are a lot of people who resist certain things because they don't want to, they don't want to do that. There are people, you ever met a non-Christian who you like, man, they so they, they would make a good Christian. They just a nice person. You don't never see them get angry, nothing. And you up there complaining about your boss to them. They giving you advice and you the believer. Man, you just start reading what they read. But it's just like this. You see that. You see it all over the place, right? There are moral people in the sense of morality. So what makes what we do different? This verse explains what makes it different. The obedience of faith for the sake of his name is what makes us different than everyone else. 
even if they do it better than us, we obey because of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And that makes our obedience totally different. Even if someone does it better than us, if their obedience is not in the faith of Jesus Christ for the sake of his name, then it's no obedience at all to God. It has to be very specific. It's the obedience of the faith. That means our actions, our thoughts, our attitudes. We make efforts to honor Jesus because we have faith in him. That's what it means. So what I'm getting at is your motive, my motive, our motive for why we do and don't do things is because we want to honor him. When that motive is not that reason, then it's not obedience that comes from faith. It's selfish ambition. I just want to be a better person. I want to get a raise. I want to want to live longer. I want to do this. I'm just tired of being don't have I want a relationship. I need to be all the different things that people do. Cool. Do that. But obedience, it comes from faith is what Paul is saying God sent him and those like him to do is to bring about the obedience of the faith, actions, thoughts, and attitudes because you have faith in Jesus Christ. That's what makes you different. So when people pray five times a day that don't believe in Jesus, God is only hearing a person, he's hearing you who prayed once last week because you do believe in Jesus. There is a difference. The obedience of the faith. Next chapter, when we get to chapter two, he's going to use this language, obeying unrighteousness. So there's this obedience of faith, obedience of unrighteousness. We'll see that in chapter two. Paul says that he's called, that we are called. Verse six, he's talking to them, but it extends to us in verse six. Let me read verse five again. Through him we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name, for the sake of his name among the Gentiles, including you who are called by Jesus Christ. Called by Jesus Christ. So this isn't just a random occurrence of events. Saying you all, because you have faith in Jesus Christ and you're trying to obey Jesus Christ, is proof that you've been called by him to do so. This is what that means. And this is important because we don't feel this. And I've said this before, this isn't new. I, hope it, I don't want to say something's new. I want to say something's true. The fact that you read your Bible, resist attitudes and actions that are opposite of what the Bible teaches is proof that God has called you and the Spirit's at work in you. It's proof. Because you wouldn't do these things to honor the Lord. You wouldn't resist these things consistently if God didn't give you faith to do so. What would be the point? What would be the point? There are some sins that are just fun. There's pleasure in sin. It's only when the spirit of God is in us will we realize cussing somebody out that used to make us feel good. It used to feel good to tell somebody off. Now you feel terrible. See, the spirit of God in you changes that, and now you see it differently. Stuff that you used to do that you used to, get, to be excited about, couldn't, couldn't wait to do. I used to, couldn't wait till Friday night came. 
when I was working, I'd be like, man, I'm getting me a bag. I'm getting twisted. And I'm doing whatever. Couldn't wait. Couldn't wait. But now it's like, wow. That's crazy. You look back at your life and you think, man, I was actually cool with that. You look at stuff you do now, like, oh, man, what was I thinking? Oh, man, I was blind spotted. The fact that you care, the fact that you care, that it bothers you, is proof that the obedience of faith because of Jesus exists in you. The fact that it's hard to pray and it's hard to read is proof that there is an opposing force stopping you from that. Now, some of you may have grown up in the church and you may not have had a period of your life where you remember a clear difference. There's enough of us in here that remember a clear difference. You remember when you just didn't care. You remember when people said go to church. And you was like, what? There was a time I remember walking in church and I would hear the worship songs that we sing. And I'd be in the back dying laughing. And I would have I would get more joy out of watching people sing and look like they serious with it. And watching the rhythm and all that, I'd laugh and I'd be in the back dying laughing like, man, why, hey, we need to come back next week just to laugh. And now here I am, affected. Some songs I need to sit down and just humble myself. I'm crying at some songs. I'm watching other people crying. What happened? The Spirit of God is in you do not read the Bible because it's enjoyable reading. If it is, it's become that way to you because of the Spirit of God. Because the Bible is tough work. Do not do the thing you did yesterday. Man, let me binge Netflix real quick. Let me watch something and just chill. I don't even want to think about that. Let me watch this. Let me read you know, Lord of the Rings or something. I ain't trying to read the Bible. I'll read articles and news reports and all that. That's easy. This happened today. Oh, man, wow, these people are wild. The Bible, you're wild. Oh, man, I don't want to read that. <laughs> Never mind. I ain't even trying to read that, man. I, I don't even want to read. You know what I'm saying, right? You feel that, right? The reason why you still read is because the Spirit of God is in you. You were called by God to an obedience of faith in him, not just doing good for good's sake, but for his, the sake of his name. That's different. And then he closes with a wonderful conclusion in verse 7 to a wonderful explanation. He proves that the icing on the cake is verse 7. Here's the icing on the cake. Now, we're not in Rome, but this extends to us. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Listen to this. Loved by God, called as saints. Loved by God, called as saints. Even when your cell phone goes off in church. Loved by God, <laughs> called as saints. That's huge. Don't let that slip away from you. Don't let the fact that you don't feel that way be the determining factor for the word. Loved by God, called as saints. He sees us as saints. 
not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And he's given us a faith that says we're going to be obedient because we have faith in what he's done. So he calls us saints and we're loved by God. That's huge. It's the, it's the horizontal. Here's the vertical. What God and them decided what Jesus did, here's the horizontal. Here's the horizontal implications. We're loved by God, called as saints. And he closes, grace to you, un unearned favor to you, and peace, blessings from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a serious introduction. This is Paul's high. I'm Paul. So for those of you who are excited about Romans, buckle up, because this is just an intro. He's going to take us through a lot. But by his grace, by God's grace, we're going to learn a lot more about what we believe from the theological, from the vertical to the horizontal. Horizontal. Questions? Any questions? I need an Oprah. You got me, Nalia? Thank you. I was starting to think only Drew gets that type of applause. Thank you. I was Good. Any questions? Catch you from anyone. Yep, Ben. Now I can drink. First of all, uh, thank you for um, taking us on this journey. I think uh, I can speak maybe for other people. The reason I'm excited for Romans is because um, although the theology might be dense, it is um, really the foundation of what we really believe. And I yeah. think you've touched on that here today. And, and I'm already being encouraged at, at just uh, you know the, what it means to be saved and, and to be in God's grace. But um, I specifically wanted to just... Um, ask what you touched on the fact that um, there was kind of like a status change between Jesus's death before his death and resurrection. So obviously, as believers, we want to emphasize the divinity of Christ. So it's not saying that Jesus became God, but exactly what was that change? You know, when you made the statement, the cosmos saw Jesus differently. What exactly was that? And, and um, where where does that play a function in us understanding the cross and the resurrection better? Does that make sense? It does. My answer is wait two chapters. Wait a couple. I mean, this was Romans unfolds this. That's one of the places Romans will unfold the significance and the implications of this. It unfolds this. But I'll just a short answer. A short answer would be. Um, The fact that Jesus is going to be worshipped. So if, let's read Philippians 2. He says, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. This is all the result of him dying on the cross. So we can have confidence, like John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with him. That's true, and, and all things are held through him. Hebrews 1, it highlights who he was in eternity past. So Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 5 or so. It'll highlight who Jesus was in eternity past. But then there are scriptures, and particularly in Revelation, where you start seeing that as a result of Jesus dying on the cross, this is now who he is. Everything is about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. There's a, there's a reason why. Why are we worshiping God the Father? In the Old Testament, they weren't worshiping Jesus specifically. They were worshiping God. They weren't worshiping Jesus, even though... We can look back and we know that he was there. I mean, the prophets, 
but they testify that he's coming. They weren't worshiping Jesus. But once Jesus comes, God the Father says, everyone now worships him. That's significant. That's crazy. So God the Father is the one that they're worshiping and obeying in the Old Testament. But then Jesus comes, does a sacrifice that is significant. Now everything is about Jesus. So now he is the name that you worship. So now it's about Jesus, about what he's done. So we're not looking back to the Red Sea. We're not looking back to God saving his people in the Old Testament in that way. We're looking back to the cross. We're looking back to what Jesus has done. So he becomes the priority. And it's just incredible. It's not that we don't worship the Father, but Jesus said, if you worship me, you worship the Father. If you love me, you love the Father. So everything is connected to Jesus Christ. He became so he became really the focus after the crucifixion and really the resurrection. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, then it would, it would be, he wasn't who he said he was. The fact that he rose and nobody rose him, nobody said, Jesus, come out of the grave. Nobody said that. When in Luke, in Luke 7, when he touched the, the young man from the town of Nain, Jesus touched that dead body and he got up. And John, John, was it John 11? Lazarus, come out. It was Jesus that raised him from the dead. Nobody said, Jesus, come out. Nobody. They had Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. A couple of angels showed up and scared them boys white. They took off. They saw them angels and was like, man, I quit. I'm not even, I don't even work here no more. I ain't, I ain't signed up for this. That's an angel sitting on a rock. They left. The stone rolls away. Jesus gets up on his own by the power of the Holy Spirit. So all the priority now goes to him. But we'll see that play out more and more as the scripture comes. Good question, though. Anyone else? Yep. Karen, and then I don't know your name. but you. Because I had the same question. So, I mean, just in a general sense, are you saying it's just a theological progression, progressive thought? Is that pretty much what you're saying? Like that's like a conclusion we can draw. I think so. Of, okay. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at the, the narrative of the Bible, it's all progressive, right? This is the way God does things in progressive revelation. So Genesis 3, 15, we hear that this woman is going to give birth to a seed and he's going to crush the serpent's head. So now we're waiting. Who is this? So, who, so how does that happen? Well, next he gets Abraham and promises Abraham that he's going to have descendants. And so then Abraham has a son and then he has children and then they end up becoming this, this great nation called Israel. And then Israel becomes these people, but God promises that one's going to come that's going to, you know, so there's just a progressive revelation and it's all waiting. So like the Old Testament like points back to Jesus, the Gospels point at him, and the letters point up to him. So there's a sense where there's this progressive revelation the whole way. So I think that's what's, that's what's happening. Okay. You know, now obviously we're here, so we can't see that. We just look at the text and think, okay, so I'm not saying Jesus was never God or anything like that. That's, that's proven. What I'm saying is some of the designations and the reasons we worship him and stuff are not because he created all things. It's because he humbled himself, died on the cross, and was resurrected that now he's the one. Now he's the one. Now his name is the one that we worship. Now it's Jesus that we preach about. We're not preaching about. When we talk about God, we don't even know what that means anymore, right? Unless it's Jesus that's how we know that you at least on the same page. So everything, the priority shifts to Jesus. That wasn't that way in the Old Testament. It was the priority was God's presence in the temple and stuff like that. It was God. It wasn't, 
there wasn't a sense of that's coming. That was prophesied to come. So it's, it definitely is progressive. Thank uh, you. I don't know your name, but there's a guy back there. Hi, I'm Nick. Nick, how you doing? Um, so the beginning of this chapter is called A Letter of Paul to the Romans. And in verse 7, we kind of go to, to all those in Rome. And you said, we can kind of assume that's for us too. What if you go through this and you're still feeling, this letter is for somebody else, it's not for me? That's a good question. Um, so the question that you have to ask yourself is then, wh why would we read any of the Bible? So the Bible was written thousands of years before us. So when we get to chapter 15, when we get to chapter 15, Paul will explain like what the purpose of the Old Testament was, that it was written for our instruction, not edification. There are other, other verses, like in 2 Timothy 3, where he talks about the Bible is the word of God and is useful for instructing and teaching. And so he gives a credibility to the Bible as we know it is instructive for all of us. So if you think that way, I mean, I, I don't know why you think that way. I can understand if you're just looking at the literal words, but then when we get later on, you'll understand that he's, he's explaining these things. The letter was written to those in Rome, but it extends far beyond that. Then you have to think, okay, God wants us to read this. It's not like we get, okay, this was their Bible back then, and then we have our Bible now. I mean, there's some translation things, right? But it's, pre it's the same word. So we're reading what they wrote back then. So God wrote this to them in, in specifically, but it extends to all of us, and he'll explain some of that in later chapters. Good question, though. Second back there, yep. Hello. Um, so I was oh, just George, thinking, okay. yes. <laughs> um, the scripture that says that before the foundations of the world were lain, Jesus was um, crucified or he was slain. So I'm just wondering, I think it was Revelations 13, 8. Um, so I'm wondering with what you're describing, is it more, is it about our revelation of him, who he is? Or am I making sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is. I think it'll make the most sense in heaven. I'm just being honest. There are aspects to this and questions that don't make sense to us. So it'll make the most sense in heaven. The, the point I'm trying to make is that because Jesus died on the cross, he's seen differently. He's seen differently. God gives him appoints him as a son of God. Now, we could say, if we want to get really theological, we could say, well, that happened before eternity passed, so that was already there. But God reveals himself through Jesus Christ as his son, and so we have to deal with what's the revelation that we've received. Sure, we could get into debates about, I mean, there's some people who say, uh, there's one debate that goes way back early on that says, Jesus was eternally begotten as a son of God. Some people say, no, there's no way he was. So there's there's a lot of debates that we can get into that, to be honest with you, we only know based upon what we think. Our confidence lies the most in. But when we read scriptures like, because of this, he's now, then there is a difference. There was something that prior to Jesus doing this that is different now that he's done this. So there's a couple of the passages that I could tell you that highlight this. Now, because of this, now he's this and he's this and we'll worship him this way and this way. It's, it's something changed. He became something to us different than who he was prior to doing this. So if he hadn't died on the cross, I don't know if he would have been how we would have perceived him. And we don't have to know because he did it. He did die on the cross. Good question. Is there anyone? Was there one more? 
Violet, and then Vicky Vic. Uh, a violet. Okay, Vicky, they both start with V. Okay, so if you were back in the day and you believed in Jesus, who would you have worshipped? Back in the days in the Old Testament? Right. If you believed in Jesus? Mm -hmm. Bef uh, uh, before he was crucified. Who would you have worshipped? You'd have worshipped the Messiah, the promise. You'd have worshipped a lot of different things. You'd have worshipped, which you would have believed him to be the Messiah, the son of David. The, so you sometimes you hear those designations, son of David. Son of, um, you would have worshipped, you'd have believed he was the son of God, so you'd have worshipped him as those things. Some of the designations that he, he said, so son of, well, son of man, you wouldn't have worshipped the son of man. That was a common term, but he used that sort of as a guise. But son of God. Son of David, which to them meant, you know, oh, you're the messianic king, the Messiah. That's what that meant. So when you look at uh, Palm Sunday, they're laying down, you know, that's, they're worshiping the Messiah, who they think is the, but they don't think he's going to die, though. Right. They're not worshiping someone. That's, the, that's what I mean, like the cross changed everything. The cross was different than what they all thought he was going to be. So I think, I think there were some people who rejected him because he got, he got, was like, man, he died on the cross. Like, what you... Like, that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, it's foolish. It's foolishness to the degree. It's like it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolish degrees. Like, why would you worship the Messiah and he got killed by the Romans? And the Jewish people, so your savior is a dude who hung on a cross? Only criminals hang on crosses. So that's, there's a lot of different things that they would have had to work through. But they would have had, though they, would, they didn't understand the significance of the cross until after Jesus resurrected and then his spirit came at Pentecost and actually. Uh, my question can mix with Karen and mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Rogers. If you're saying that uh, Jesus sort of a kind of like change after the cross, I understand that, like what you're saying, but like how would you put in Isaiah 6, because that was like before Jesus and the cross, and then Revelation 4, because if you ask Isaiah, who did he see? He would say God. If you ask John, who did you see? He would say he saw Jesus. But, like, this is talking about the same thing but different times. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So Isaiah 6, I think, is describing, I think it's describing God the Father. So I think Isaiah 6 is, and that would be Revelation 4. Revelation 5 is when you see Jesus coming as a lamb who was slain. So apart until in the Old Testament, you know, they didn't really have the vision that they had of Jesus was a prophetic understanding. And even then, it wasn't clear. It wasn't really clear. Like people somewhat knew, but it wasn't clear to everyone. This is why when Jesus shows up, no one recognizes who he is. And then even after he's crucified, he's walking on the road with two of his disciples in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. And he has to explain to them through the law and all the prophets that the son of man was to have this happen. So they didn't even realize that that was going on. So I'm not sure if Ephesians 6, I mean, I, I'm sorry, Isaiah 6, that vision of God had Jesus. I'm sure he was there, but that really is a picture of Isaiah in front of God, not necessarily Jesus specifically. 
He's describing the throne room of God, the Father, in which that's the same thing we would see in Revelation 4. But in Revelation 5, what you see is the lamb who appears to be slain. In the Old Testament, Jesus was relatively hidden, to be honest. It wasn't like they, he was hidden. They knew that a, a, a king was coming from the line of David, but they were thinking he's going to be a military king like David was, fight the Romans. They weren't thinking the son of God. and so That's why when he said he was the son of God, they were like blasphemy. They weren't expecting that. They weren't expecting him to be the way that he was. So their view of Jesus was, was veiled. And that's why he did miracles and things so that people could know this is the dude. Like when he healed a man born blind and they were like, that's the devil. He was like, I love when it says Jesus was marveled at their lack of faith. I love that because I think he literally was like, are you serious? <laughs> he was born blind and I healed him. He can see. And you don't recognize who I am? When they, when they doubted that what he said, he said, then judge the, the works that you see. Judge me by the miracles that you see. See, we have to understand, we know who Jesus is, and we can look back and see that, but they didn't know that back then. That's why he did all the stuff that he did. They didn't realize that, that that's who he was, and that's how it was going to be. So what I'm saying, so I, I don't, Isaiah 6, to me, when I think of that, I think of that's a picture of God. The father, Isaiah is seeing a significant scene. He's seeing a being sitting. It's not clear if it's Jesus. I looked at it as that's the father, or it just really just says it's, it's, it's Yahweh, it's God. I don't, I don't think of that as Jesus. Jesus shows himself in that eternity realm in Revelation 5. Well, Revelation 1, John sees him with flaming eyes and all this stuff, right? Skin of bronze and hair of wool, sword coming out of his mouth. And then you see him in Revelation 5 as a lamb who appears to be slain. Then you see him as a, 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 a conqueror on a horse. So there's a number of different images in Revelation that highlight who he was. But who he would have been had he not died on the cross, we don't know. But because he did die, it just ch it changed some things in the eternal realm. Was that, there was one more? I love it. We're going to get it in in Romans. I love it. All right, last one. Oh, it is 12, okay. Morning. Quick question is uh, when every knee shall bow and, mm -hmm. and you see him, what, isn't that in uh, Revelation in, in that tells that that will be on the coming, on the second coming of Jesus Christ, which will be the final period of time? Whether, you know, during this after the tribulation and everything, isn't that the appearance of Jesus, the return of Jesus Christ? Well, it depends on how you, yes, that is the return, but it depends on, there, not everyone has the same end times perspective, so it depends on how you view that. Um, but, mm -hmm. yeah, when, when Jesus returns, I think there are some people who think he'll return and take some people with him, and then there are some people who think when he returns once, that's just it. But the every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, that's a reality. We see that first in Philippians 2, where, where Paul is writing saying that, because Jesus humbled himself and became a man that now, be, I mean, I, I read it. You could look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11, beginning in verse 8. It says, because he's done this, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. So it, so it kind of gives us a precursor of the future reality that's coming. But when we get to Revelation, we know that's just going to happen. That's gonna, I don't know. I can't remember a verse that says that directly in Revelation. 
but we know that that's just the reality because of who he is. Good. I'm excited. I'm excited. Hi from Paul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the, the wonderful way that you display your mercy vertically and then horizontally. The amazing way that you allow a, a city like Rome, who was humanly responsible for killing your son, you proved that you answered Jesus's prayer when he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. You proved that you answered that by having a church be in this city. And then by giving them the greatest, what would all, most of us would consider the greatest theological treatise. It doesn't cover everything, but it's the greatest illustration to the people who did the greatest atrocities. That's the greatest mercy that you would save anyone, but let alone a city where people who killed them are still there and living. So Lord, we pray as we go on this journey through Romans, it will be deep, it will be fun, it will be convicting. But may it be encouraging. May we see passages like called as saints, loved by God. May we remember that the obedience that we have is the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Not just for the sake of being a better person or, or accomplishing some other task, but what we do, we are motivated for the sake of his name. And when we fail, we're still called and loved as sons and daughters. So I thank you for Romans. I thank you for this letter that you've written. I thank you for the amazing truth that's in these letters. Some of it's complicated. Some of it will have to learn things that we didn't know previously to understand what he's saying in this letter. But I pray that you would use this to sharpen all of us. And that if no other reason, we would be more resolved in our faith in you as a result of what we learned from the letter to the Romans. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, please don't forget, we need uh, probably the last, what is it, about six rows?